Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today, I'm honored to speak with the Reverend Dr. Willie James Jennings, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale University Divinity School. He is the author of The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, and a new book on theological education due out next year titled After Whiteness, Cultivating Erotic Souls. I am delighted to have the opportunity to talk with Willie today. If you've not read his work, then you might have heard him speak as he's a frequent lecturer at various institutions. I was at one of those, having heard him speak at the Wheaton Theology Conference several years ago. It's been 10 years since the publication of The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race with Yale University Press. So today we're going to spend much of our time talking about this important work, as well as his current research on the doctrine of creation. It's not an exaggeration for me to say that the Christian imagination was convicting and transformative for me, and I hope it will be for you as well on Script listeners. Welcome, Willie. Thank you so much, Amy. Glad to be here. So theology is still new terrain for um, our Unscript listeners, not necessarily as a discipline, but as a subject for the podcast. So I've been talking to each of my guests about the various disciplines within theology, because especially outside of it, you know, who knows what the difference is between practical, historical, systematic, right? All these terms. And you are a, uh, at least by title, a systematic theologian. Could you start us off today by talking about uh, what systematic theology is and what your journey into theology looked like? Well, systematic theology is the, um, the discipline that studies um, the life of God, really, and um, is concerned with carrying on a conversation throughout time and space with other women and men who have spent their lives thinking about God and God's work in the world. That's probably the simplest way to put it, but I think it's probably closest to home for for most people who call themselves theologians throughout history. I I got interested in theology because I was um, raised in the church, and I, unlike many kids, um, who were asleep during all the sermons and uh, Bible lessons and Sunday school and evening church, I was awake. <laughs> and I, I listened very carefully, and I started asking questions because none of it made any sense to me. I was that precocious kid that ministers um, say in public they would love to have, but in private they think, oh, no, I don't want one of those. So I was the one who would always say, well, could you explain that again? That didn't make sense. And what you said today contradict what you said last Sunday. And I didn't understand that sermon at all. What were you trying to say? <laughs> so, <laughs> you were one of those. <laughs> uh, I was one of those kids that um, questioned everything. In fact, um, I'm sure certain members of your your listening audience will understand. Um, the minister, uh, at one point in time, the minister I grew up with, he put my mother to the side and he said, Mrs. Jennings, I... I seriously doubt your son is saved. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and my dear mother said, I think he's going to be okay, Reverend. I think he's going to be fine. But I was, I was always had questions. And so my journey into theology, into being a theologian, was um, a journey inside of questions. And uh, I, loved, I loved listening to people think about their life and their life with God. And um, I learned very early that the great gift that God gives to us even more than answers, is God leads us into the right questions. And so I've always been someone um, who's loved searching for the right questions because so much of life, so much of life is really not found in answers. It's found in questions. And so as a theologian, I glory in the questions. And so I've been uh, I've been being a theologian for many years now. Well, I think we can all go home now. That was a good. <laughs> oh, you know that is so true. I love the way you put that. Was so um, it hits home for me as well. I mean, that's what drove me into the early church was not some obsession with Christian origins or something like that, but the fact that they were asking questions in a way that were that were sort of fresh and new and and helped me get out of my particular frame uh, in a way that allowed me to have conversation partners that were asking questions in a way that w- it was very clarifying for me. And, and, I, and I found that I found great companions there. And you're right. It's, it, the, it's about the questions or the place where you sort of find fruitfulness. Absolutely. Right. As opposed to like, I have now come up with the answer and I have a statement on it. <laughs> Right, right. It's it's one of the great joys in life to find out find out why people do what they do in relationship to what they believe about God, and to ask, continue to ask, why did they do that, and why do people do that? And you know, that's what connects us with Christians um, long past. It's inside of the um, the mystery and, and inquiry of people's actions who say they are people of faith, good and bad. Yeah. I could talk about that all day, but I want to get to your book. (laughs) So I was struck um, as we move into a conversation about the Christian imagination. I was struck by your story in the introduction um, about the two men from a church down the street who came and visited your house when you were a kid and who basically assumed that you needed to go to church. <laughs> Even after your mom said very clearly she was a Christian, where she went to church, who the pastor was, you say this, quote, I remember this event because it underscored an inexplicable strangeness embedded in the Christianity I lived and observed. Experience like these fueled a question that has grown in hermeneutic force for me. Why did they not know us? They should have known us very well, end quote. So you you expand on this and then talk about the deep lack of knowing, the deep lack of imagination of what Christianity is and the power it has to, you say, enact the social, to imagine and enact connection and belonging. And this episode, episode demonstrated for me as a reader just how passive our limited imaginary is or passive and pervasive. So just how comfortable and determined we are to remain in that constricted framework. Would you talk about the genesis of this project, uh, of articulating the problems that you lay out in the book as a failure of Christian imagination? 
Yeah, I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is, I like to say, the most theological city in the in the United States. Um, when I was growing up there, um, it's still very Christian, but it was intensely Christian when I was growing up. It's the home of a denomination, the Christian Reformed Church of America. It has um, a plethora of Reformed Church of America churches as well. It has every denomination under the sun present. Uh, everything from Catholics to the Pentecostals to the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses everywhere. <laughs> it, has, it has every form of Christianity and quasi-Christianity you could imagine. And it's the home of um, several Christian publishers. Urban's is there. Zondervan's is there. Uh, Baker Bookhouse was there, still is there, and there was another one called Kriegel. Uh, some people who are are steeped in the Reformed tradition know, know the Kriegel bookstore. So, and all these stores were right were right around me. Um, I could get on my bike and, and drive to any of their uh, warehouses and buy all the theology books I wanted. And you know, um, Grand Rapids was the kind of town that you know on Saturday in the paper they would have the you know news of the heresy trials. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it was a really serious, really serious Christian. So it was intensely Christian, but it was also intensely racist and intensely segregated. And I, I could not understand. I could not get my mind around that. How people could be so serious about the faith, and and we're talking about people who are serious about the faith. Serious about um, orthodoxy, serious about theology, serious about understanding the faith, and yet be so steeped in racist thinking, in segregationist thinking, in ethnic conflict. And, you know, it was, it was an amazing thing to me. And so the Christian imagination grew out of trying to get my mind around how these matters. See, here's the here's the thing, Amy. These these were never understood as contradictions, and that that's what struck me as I was growing up. No one saw these as contradictions. That is, no one saw this as a profound challenge to the very authenticity of the faith they proclaimed and taught and learned. It was seamlessly woven together, and at that moment, I thought Man, there is something strange about the Christianity. Because if the Christianity functions such that people can have a robust theological interest woven inside a robust segregationist way of thinking about the world and a robust and rigorous racist way of looking at people, then something is really sick. Um, and the book led me, the book shows my um, attempt to try to get down to the very foundations of what drives this. Uh, I, you know, I, I've studied race all my life, and I understood that the other disciplines that have tried to think about race have contributed much, but they all missed the mark. I mean, that is, they all didn't get to the root of it. Um, whether it's the sociologists or the historians or the philosophers or the, um, you know, the, the, um, you know, the other, the, the anthropologists, none of them really were able to tap into why 
race was such a powerful way of looking at the world. And so that's, that's what led to the Christian imagination, trying to understand how um, the racial imagination is precisely the child of the, a distorted Christian imagination. Yeah, and it's one of those things that through the other things I've read and, and that kind of thing, like that that rang true. We're like, all right, it wasn't like a n- completely new idea in that sense. Um, but your book really just laid it out. And as a historical theologian, I just, <laughs> the way you did it, was, and we'll get into that in a moment, but this, you look at how we got to where we are. And I hear a lot, <laughs> and this struck me as I was reading this, how you bring us to, you start in the 15th century, and then you use a, f- a few episodes from there. Um, what I hear a lot, and, I, and I'm realizing now it's from a lot of white people, <laughs> how the person that gets, uh, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people are, are not a fan of him in general, but where we tend to go for, if we're going to talk about um, a diseased social imagination, or talking about Christianity's complicity with power, uh, we tend to skip over all the stuff you talk about and go back to Constantine. It was Constantine's fault. And I realized as I was reading your book, well, it, you know, sure, there's some problems <laughs> with what Constantine does, right? Uh, but there was a sense of, like, distancing, um, a sense of distancing that, and, and responsibility uh, in doing that. You can shove it back with this Roman emperor who's all the way back here, right? And, and I remember I've thought about that a lot in the sense of we have to go back <laughs> that far. Um, and what your book did was really brought it into uh, – you don't allow that historical distancing. Right, right. No, we, we, have, to, we have to see the roots. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of those – it's like, a, it's like um, the, the composition of a disease. So a certain element from one time – connects to another element from another time to another element and then all of a sudden you have something that nobody imagined would coalesce into the horror it did but you have to see all those elements and and so those elements take us back almost to the very beginning of Christianity yeah so you speak a lot about the resistance of theologians in the academy to think theologically about their identities. Uh, You talk about dissociation and dislocation that have become fundamental to the habits um, of the mind for theologians. Um, Would you explain what you mean by this and perhaps offer an update on this assessment? (laughs) Have you seen some movement? 10 years is not long in you know, academic book years, but have you seen some movement in addressing these issues or has everything remained pretty much the same? Well, the, um, the disassociation and uh, dislocation that I mentioned early in the book have to do with um, a couple of major matters. The first having to do with the way we understand the earth and the ground, which also ties into my next big project. But um, and the the profound effect on the way we understand the body once we think of the body relationship to land being private and land and the land not being connected to us 
in any substantive way, only connected to us volitionally and connected to us economically. Um, the good news is that in recent years, um, there have been a lot more people who are starting to see the connection between, as I'm teaching a class at Yale called land, land and body. And there's a lot of people starting to see the connection between land and body uh, and recognizing that um, it has more to do with simply um, the old theological language of stewardship. It really has to do with a different understanding of who we are once we see, start to see um, the significance of land. So that's been an improvement. Unfortunately, too many people have not yet understand the connection with race. <laughs> and so they, don't, they can see that the land is important, but they don't understand, in point of fact, how racial existence is already a form of enclosure, already a distorted way of disassociating some, uh, ourselves with not only the land, but with one another. The, the, the other part of dislocation and disassociation has to do with the intellectual task that is fundamental to um, being a Christian and also being a theologian, the, the, the intellectual task of witness. And here we still have a long way to go, Amy. The, the, and this has to do with the kind of um, what I call pedagogical imperialism that emerges for Christianity as it hits the new world. And the, um, the, the fundamental position that frames the way we do our work as always being teachers and never learners. Uh, that part, um, in terms of um, the, the theological communities in the States and in other places, though I've been talking to some colleagues in South Africa, and people are talking about this a lot more, which I'm glad to see, um, but that really hasn't yet um, done the work it needs to do. Doctoral formation in the West continues to be deeply colonial uh, in the way we form um, uh, would-be professors. Uh, and, and we teach people to live inside a fundamental imperialist position in relationship to, to what it means to teach. Um, and so... That hasn't yet made its way into our pedagogical imaginations, but I'm hoping it will. Um, but the good news is that there are people who are starting to see, okay, I, I actually don't just live in a house. I actually don't just go to a church. I really am a part of a place that I need to now start thinking more seriously about what it means to be in a place. Yeah, so that part is good. Oh, that's, it's a, I, I hope to see that realized more because um, there, there is a strange sense. And I think that any time joining into the theological project, because, you know, I, I'm a white woman, but being a woman in theology is its own. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a very, oh, it's yeah. a very like male space, right? Like, Absolutely. and I'm Absolutely. still processing even when I've had immense support from professors and various things, so I'm not talking about like, you know, a situation like toxic environment sort of things. I'm not talking about that at all. Just the sense of sitting in classes and going, I never would have written this book. Mm -hmm, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Like the terms that are used, the the way we're talking about it, like it's just not. I'm I'm a 
and the way that we talk about different kinds of uh, intellection, right? Well, intuition or things from your gut. And I and and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but it strikes me it's it's been so important to me. My first graduate systematic theology class, um, and I had a female professor, um, but there were there was I've there were these guys in the back of the room uh, that. And it dominated the class because they could quote the quote Bart quote Calvin off the top of their heads, and I felt like I couldn't be a theologian for years because I had not, I couldn't quote these people. I couldn't like argue like apologetics, being uh, especially <laughs> speaking of imperialism, um, like the sense of um, you have to. Theology is arguing. Theology is winning. Theology is this, that, and the other. Uh, and it has it has taken a long time for me to even kind of map where those places of of dissociation for me in my own context and space have been, and to think about theology differently and more generatively. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, this um this next book that I have coming out next year on um, theological education. After whiteness, I've changed the subtitle. It's um, on on education on education in belonging. And, excuse me, and education in belonging. I was, I'm glad but you I, brought this up because I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah, but it's 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 trying to address this very thing. The the argument of that book is that um, theological education and Western education as well are still shaped in one dominant image of formation, and that image of formation is to create us all to become white self-sufficient men who embody three what I call demonic virtues possession control and mastery and um, I, I offer an alternative vision for formation which is Jesus and the crowd but this is this is a this is a problem this is part of the this dislocation and disassociation that is so much a part of theological formation, intellectual formation. All right. Well, again, could talk about that all day. But so I want to shift to uh, talking specifically, specifically talking about race for a moment. So it's quite common uh, in books on race, sermons about race, etc., to talk about racial reconciliation. Right? It's a phrase that we hear a lot. Of course, there are varying opinions uh, about using reconciliation for various reasons um, in reference to in reference either to African-American or colonized experiences of all sorts. So in order to talk about reconciliation and its full theological referent, you state it's necessary to address, quote, the profound deformities of Christian intimacy and identity in modernity. And these two concepts set up much of the work that you do in your book as you're getting towards the end. So we're going to dive into the specifics for a moment. But for now, would you give us an overview of the work that you're, you do in addressing what has been deformed, maybe specifically uh, around talking about race, specifically? Yeah. Um, the, 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 the fundamental problem is that people have accepted race as a, a category of creation. Um, and even those who will recognize in, in the last 20 years, a lot of people say, well, real race is a construct. But, they, but all their practice, all their behavior, all the structures of existence that they inhabit 
continue to make it more than a construct. <laughs> they, can, they continue to make it an aspect of creation. And so they imagine reconciliation on top of um, race as an aspect of creation. And of course, the, the language people often use, they'll often equate, the, without ever realizing they're equating this, when they, when, they, when they use the word ethnic or ethnicity, when they use the word culture, cultural difference, when they use the word diversity, um, diverse voices, they bring back in the very idea that is so deeply problematic because it's more than an idea. It's it's a it's a as I say, it's a way of seeing the world and a way of being in the world at the same time. And so, um, the fundamental mistake with reconciliation is reconciliation is imagined on top of distorted creation. And um, and, and so, if we take the idea of reconciliation, it's in in the um, in the New Testament, especially the, the famous Second Corinthians text, you know there there is recreation that is you know that's fundamentally a part of thinking about reconciliation, and so getting people to think down into the depths of identity formation is crucial if we're going to actually start to take reconciliation seriously. You know there, there have been a number of people written about this recently, and, and I, I think it's become a kind of shared wisdom among a number of people to say that we, we have to attend to the way the word reconciliation, the idea of reconciliation, has been used ideologically to, to underwrite this political and social and, most importantly, the economic status quo. Uh, and uh, obviously it's aimed at um, shunning violence, which is great. Which is, you know, if, if there's any good that can be said about a lot of the work on reconciliation in in recent decades, is that it has aimed at trying to challenge violence, but it doesn't understand um, the ground upon which violence forms. So, you know, so the difficulty here, and what I try to do in the book, is to suggest that um, in order for us to fully appreciate what the writer is trying to get us to understand in Reconciliation, we have to see the new creature that is being formed in communal space. The new creature not being formed in isolation, but the new creature being formed not only in communal space, but by communal space. A new, cre a new creation is a new creation in community, a new creation in communion. And without that, there is no new creation. I want to I want to put a bookmark there because I want to come back to it in a moment because I think that the work that you do in telling these narratives in Christian imagination, uh, it you mentioned at the in the introduction how you're kind of like a film director, <laughs> bringing all these threads together, and and I felt that like as I was going through it because I, there was a sense in which ooh how's this going to connect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a, like a good storyteller, and you do it. Um, so I, I want to see if I can if I can help our listeners have a little bit of that. Um, although I'm going to say you need to read the book uh, in order to get it in full. But so your book is comprised of three major sections: displacement, translation, and intimacy. In each section, you offer stories of people who uh, each offer another way of thinking of the theological problem you're addressing. So this is where I will admit that I didn't know my knowledge of the colonialist movement was as deficient as it was. 
So your storytelling historical theology approach here was incredibly illuminating for me on multiple levels. So let's begin with your section on displacement. Here you tell two stories from the 15th century, the story of Gomez, Yanis de Azuara. You might have to work on my pronunciation there. Uh, and uh, Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal's royal chronicler. And it was Zuara who was theologizing the actions of Prince Henry and writing it down. And from the late 16th century, the story of Jose de Acosta Porres, a Jesuit priest from Spain who writes a few histories of the New World in Peru. So you draw on these two stories to demonstrate the distortion of Christian connection and community that affects everything from how one views God to soteriology. Would you talk about one or both of these men and the theological problem of displacement and the racial theory that developed as a result? Yeah, I had said a little bit about that a moment ago, but let me come back to this. Um, both of them are profound examples of watching theology, watching theology um, lose its moorings in the in the world, in the earth, with the body, and move up into strange new work. With both of them, uh, you you see a, a theological imagination forming that, as I like to say now, has completely forgot what it means to be creature, completely forgotten the creation, and um, yet um, moves forward as though everything is all right. Here's the thing for both of them. Neither one of them understood what, what they were seeing, witnessing, and participating in as earth-shattering, groundbreaking. They just, you know, they, they just assume we can go ahead and do theology like we've always done theology and without realizing the world that's, that's absolutely being changed. So with, with um, Acosta, what we have is, um, as I say in that chapter, we have one of the most important theologians to come to what we would call the, um, um, the Americas. In, in this part of this this part of the new worlds that are being discovered, probably considered and and to this day considered probably the most important, the most brilliant of the Jesuit order. He was he was the um, he was the Wunderkind and used, used that famous German word. He was the he was the kid that everybody said, "Oh, this is exactly what we want in terms of creating a Jesuit." Brilliant, insightful. Um, Obedient, um, with you know a a he had at his fingertips um, control of so much of the Christian tradition, and he comes to the new world and he's a virulent racist. And but here's what here's the the fact that he was a racist is not the crucial really the crucial matter. It's that he watches the world get turned into private property, and. He theologizes it as God's will. <laughs> um, so the, the displacement is fundamentally a way to imagine theology in its, in, in its authenticity, in its integrity, in its completeness, utterly devoid of deep connection to the earth and the peoples of the earth. And this has remained with us since then, I mean, you know, so theologians can do their work and 
be oblivious to where they are. Utterly <laughs> oblivious to where they are. <laughs> yeah, so it, absolutely true. <laughs> so in your and then in your second major section on translation, all of these connect and the you follow the threads from the first section into the second. Um, in your second major section on translation, we move from the Americas to Africa, and you tell the story of John William Colenso, 19th century Anglican missionary bishop from England and South Africa and his translation work. And you articulate here the diminishment of the particular in favor of transcending to the universal. That was that whole section just kind of blew my mind. Um, and the story of Olada Equiano who published his two-volume autobiography in 1789 of his forcible removal from his native land of Nigeria, his journey on a slave ship, his enslavement in Virginia, and eventual emancipation. And, and I'd never heard of him before. <laughs> what, what an experience. When we think about translation, we tend to think of increased understanding, shared experience, and language. It's a fundamental good. And you speak about this side of translation, but also translation as coercive and isolating, which threads into your earlier discussion of displacement. So would you talk about, again, one or both of these men and the theological problem of translation and the distortion of Christian identity and belonging? Yeah, th there's, there's so much good in um, the history of translation and uh, so much good in the history of missionaries who... Uh, went all over the world and painstakingly listened and translated the Bible into the languages of people. And so, so I, try, I try, as I say in those chapters, I try not to um, um, discount or even disrespect that beautiful legacy. However, what we haven't done is to recognize the other side of that legacy. That translation was not simply was not simply bringing um, indigenous peoples into the biblical world. It was also translating them into the European world, the Western European world. And in doing that, it was also denying Christians the most fundamental gesture, life gesture, that should shape their Christianity. That is. Um, as I like to used to say to my students, the point of translation of the gospel <laughs> was not the translation of words, but the translation of your life. And to shape life inside an ongoing practice of translatability. Now, the problem is, is that 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 legacy has been denied us in the West such that um, we've created two massive problems. The first massive, massive problem is that by telling people that um, the gospel in effect is God giving them God's own words in their words apart from them learning anybody else's words underwrites the worst kind of nationalism, nationalistic way of thinking about faith. Because it says translation, while it 
while it offers a certain kind of cultural integrity and recognition, it also predisposes us towards segregation, predisposes us toward balkanization, predisposes us toward nationalism. In fact, you know, some of the great historians of translation would, would, will say, and I mean, my, my former wonderful colleague, um, recently deceased Lyman Sani and the great Sam, um, Andrew Walls both have pointed out that nationalisms rose up inside of um, translation, inside giving to people lexicon in written form. And both of them point out how, you know, how wonderful that is. Now, in some ways, there, there's something good about um, helping people create national literatures. <laughs> but there's also something really tragic. And so um, that, that's the first problem. So it, so it already bends us toward balkanization, already bends us toward isolation, already bends us toward segregation. That's the first tragedy. The second tragedy comes back to something I mentioned a moment ago. The, the work of translation is a work for every Christian. But it's not every Christian sitting down and learning two languages. It's every Christian having her or his life open to becoming more, open to entering fully into the worlds of others. And it begins with every Christian realizing that they are inside the story of another people. The, one of the great tragedies of Christian translation of the Bible is that it often taught people to ignore Israel. That all that was important was these words that were spoken to Israel, but not Israel. <laughs> and the, 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 so what does that mean? It means that we have often bequeathed to many peoples the legacy of loving something called the Word of God, but hating the people to whom God spoke those words. And this, this is an incredible problem for us because what it, what it creates is a profound inability and a, and a resistance to translation, to translating our lives into the lives of others and not seeing that as a fundamental reality of life with God. Um, in some ways, Translation is supposed to echo the incarnation, and it should echo in us all, not simply the few missionaries who learn how to translate words. Yeah. So I was particularly grateful for your discussion on supersessionism throughout the book. Um, and I'm grateful here at Gordon to have had the chance to spend some time with Marv Wilson. Uh, he and... Uh, he has since retired. Um, he dedicated his life to Jewish-Christian dialogue. And, and he faithfully educated our students by unraveling a lot of those supersessionist assumptions that are baked into so many Christian understandings of everything, salvation history. His modern Jewish history, uh, modern Jewish culture class was uh, profound. And I was able to go along with all the relationships that he's built for decades with local synagogues and and everything, and, and him shepherding our students through that. And, and I could choose from so many quotations <laughs> in your book, but this one's from your last chapter. 
that articulates that disease imagination and way toward healing kind of builds on what you just were talking about. You say Christian Christianity and Christian theology are unintelligible without Israel. While very few Christian writers and Christian communities have historically disputed this, Christians have interpreted Israel as an antiquated element in the wider revelation of the Christian God who has elected a new people, the Christians. An increasing number of theologians recognize the problem of supersessionism for Christianity and are now reading the theological traditions of the church in light of acknowledging this historical shortcoming. So it is an important advancement in Christian theological imagination to return to Israel, recognizing its continuing importance to Christian existence. However, the deeper challenge is whether Christian theology can explain how Israel is important to Christian existence. Indeed, Christian theologians have yet to capture the depth of the supersessionist problematic as it, as it expressed itself in the new world of colonization, colonialism. So I'd be grateful if you would reflect a little bit more deeply on the problem of supersessionism and the challenge to theology to stop feeding this beast. Yeah, so the, the, I, I like to use it as an analogy, Amy. So let's suppose um, you fall in love with someone and um, you are invited to dinner for that first time. Uh, and you're sitting there in the kitchen and you're sitting at the end of the table and dinner is being prepared and and, you know, you're there because um, someone who's a part of that family you love, but this is not your family. And you are there hoping that they will accept you. <laughs> it's an incredibly vulnerable position and frightening position. And many of us who, are, who, are, who, have, who have loves in our lives, we, we know this feeling. That first time you show up and, and you know, you're hoping that, the mother and the father will come over and, and be gracious to you. And then, you know, if there's a brother or sister, they walk in and you think, oh, God, oh, God, they like me, oh, they like me. And, um, you know, you're sitting there at the end of the table and, and the brother walks in and whispers to dad, is, uh, is, that, is, that, is that the person? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, so, and then, so everybody gathers and you're still sitting there at the end of the table. You're sitting next to your beloved and, um, you know, so you're having food and then, you know, people are talking and you're talking and then you tell a family joke and everybody stops and they realize that the person who brought you to this house has told you one of the family jokes, told you a family secret as it were. And you are there in this ultimately vulnerable position, hoping and praying that they will accept you. And then finally, the mom laughs. And then everybody laughs, and then you realize, oh, man, because they realize, okay, you, you know the family joke now. So I guess, and you're here because this, this, our child loves you. Now, that should be Christianity. That should be Christianity. And it, it should be a feeling. It's the feeling of, of being at the margins, but being brought in by love. But you always remember that you were at the margins and you are brought in by love. So if there, if there is another who comes in, you understand what it means to feel like you're at the margins. And in fact, your whole life in the family opens up from the gratitude and appreciation and the grammar of love because you were included in into a family that was not yours and into stories that were not yours but that you, by love, not by right, 
made your own, right? Now, that sense of marginality is what Christians decided they did not want. Very early, very early in um, the faith, Christians got tired of having the people of Israel say, we are the people of God. And they said, no, we are the people of God. You are the heathen. You are the Gentiles. And as you know very well since you study this, in, in so many foundational documents of Christian thought, we will have the, the most obscene, virulent comments about Jewish people. We'll have the most crazy comments calling Jewish people Gentiles, calling them heathens, and calling us the people of God. It, it's as though we created this, what I call this Gentile hubris that grows in space and time. And what does it mean? It means that it, as it moves forward, it robs us of a framework of thinking, of a habit of mind, of a sensibility, of a disposition of understanding marginality. The great Catholic theologian, uh, M. Sean Copeland, um, she wrote a great essay uh, called um, A Thinking Margin, and I wrote one in honor of her called Becoming a Thinking Margin. That's what we are. We're thinking margins. We think from the margin knowing that we have been included by grace. Now, everything I just described is nothing more than Ephesians 2, 12 and following. That's all I've just done. But we Remember want power. Of course we want power. <laughs> and, and, and the problem is, is that um, because we have ignored the way we entered, we have lost sight of our true power. As, as I've said, you know, in my commentary on the book of Acts, what Acts 2 shows us is God answering the request of the disciples for power. But it was not power over people. It was power for people. The power to want people and to gather people. And this is, this is what we've denied ourselves. So the supersessionist problem is a much deeper problem than simply ignoring Israel. It's the loss of a way, a, a way of thinking, the loss of a disposition that understands marginality and that pushes always against hubris and refuses to imagine Christianity from the controlling center. So, you know, as I like to say, you know, it, it, there was something already in place that made Constantine the problem that Constantine became. And this is what was already in place. As I used to say to my friends, I always talk about Constantine. Long before Constantine, we were, we were already set up for this because we were already, we had already distorted the gospel story to center in on us and marginalize Israel. So um, the, the, um, the supersessionist problem, in order to be taken seriously, has to be seen as a crucial engine that drives the formation of whiteness. And this is what this this is where so many people are starting to see the supersessionist problem have yet, not yet connected the dots. Whiteness exists because of supersessionism. Hmm. The consequences too. I, you you talk earlier in the book about the misplacement of scripture. 
and uh, and you're talking about dislocation there, but it, the, the but also just the the ramifications of not being marginal, and how everything then becomes grasping, right? And but you draw everything towards the end here. Um, your whole book, you're coming towards. Uh, I use grasping on purpose to evoke Philippians too, right? Um, Christ too, you know, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that sense of how we're talking about the second person of the Trinity, right? Like God, <laughs> God here and who we associate, right? With, with, with all powerful, we use all these terms, almighty and all that kind of thing. And how God being the most powerful, potentially using our you know, frame of reference, like anybody who has power on this earth has nothing compared to that, right? But being the powerful, he doesn't consider that worth. That's not something to be grasped. And so those in power, Christ is you, right? And then for those who don't have power, Christ rushes to be you by emptying himself. And and you have this beautiful section at the end where you draw in uh, your reflections on the body of Christ, the space that that body of Christ creates, the possibility, new reality of communion with God, of the people of God. And you, you bring together the relationship of the Jewish body and the black body. So we just talked about supersessionism. So um, this, the overturning of this diseased imagination with race and coming into, um, and supersessionism, coming into this authentic Christian social imagination. You talk about the space and relationship between Jews and black people that are marked by the absence of serious reflection on the body of Jesus, and then how Jewish-Christian theological dialogue is marked by the absence of serious reflection on the racial body of the centered white man, which you already referenced earlier. And so if you would draw these threads together uh, for us here, um, because you've kind of already been hitting on some of this, but to just draw together this bringing Jesus here and and how Jesus and the people of God, what this could mean for us. You know, there's a trajectory in the New Testament that we have never really captured, and it's that trajectory coming out of um, Acts. Uh, and you take Acts ten and Acts eleven. Uh, it's it's this um, it's this incredible trajectory where Peter, who is at in Acts ten. He, he is a clarified disciple, as I like to say. He he has renewed his commitment to Jesus. He is he has repented of his um, betrayal. He has um, a renewed his uh, allegiance to the God of Israel, to the way of Israel. And here in Acts ten, God says, "Okay, I want you to to now move in a direction that's totally different <laughs> than you had imagined." <laughs> and so in Acts 10, uh, that, that sheet which 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 carries which carries us, as we all know. But as I, you know, as I said in my commentary on this, what 
because we because we are inside this location, we don't really understand the significance of that sheet. So for and it's this still is the case for many peoples in the world. So when you uh, when the sheet lowers and there's these animals, Peter, like anyone of his time, would have understood that those animals are associated with various peoples. They are known people as we as we would say now, people of the bear, people of the salmon, people of the puffin, and you are known. And so to 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 eat the animal that is associated with being of that people, that this is a radical thing that God is demanding of Peter. That um, and at this moment, um, he has no basis for this leap of faith other than obedience to the living the living God, obedience to Jesus. It, you know, as I, I used to say, it's it's that famous line in Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's word of God against word of God. And here, so Peter has to now desire, because remember, the sheep comes at the height of his hunger. And God is asking Peter to turn his desires toward that which both theologically and aesthetically he has been formed to be repulsed by. And then when the when the when the struggle, because as you know in Acts 10 it's a struggle. Peter's cursing, he's upset. So there's a struggle. And then when the sheep raises, we are knocking at the door. And then so Acts 10 is the, the crucial space of Gentile entrance. We are being drawn into life with Israel and Israel is being drawn into a new life with us. And the most amazing thing about Acts 10, we find out only when we get to Acts 11. When Peter, remember in Acts 11, he goes to his um, other disciples, his, his, um, the other disciples, and the passage says they are furious with him for what he has done. Their question, why did you go among the Gentiles? And Peter's response was not, a brilliant apologetic for us. He said, I was forced to. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. God made me do this. And then Peter tells them what happened, that the Spirit fell on them just as the Spirit fell on us. And this is in this in the passage has this great verse where it says, and they were silent. There's this because they didn't know how to respond. They, they were silent. It's like it's it's like the breaking of the old and the forming of the new right in that silence. And then after the silence, they rejoice that the Gentiles have been given access to life. So in the, the last chapters of the book, what I'm trying to do is to articulate what it would mean for um, Christians to capture again that original trajectory that moves us away from hubris that moves us away from the formation toward the the self-centered man, toward life together. And this is a very difficult thing, because this, this has to do with a different fundamental image of what it means to not only thrive, but be formed toward a life of thriving. So in, in those last chapters, what I'm trying to do is to help us see the significance of not simply life together, but life together in a space that refuses, refuses 
the racial dynamic, that refuses to operate within the racial dynamic, that, that as, with, as with Acts 10 and 11, the, the, the sight of communion, of life together, the intentionality of the Spirit is what's crucial for the renewal of the Christian imagination. Christians cannot sit, sit alone and imagine themselves into a better faith. <laughs> They can't. If I, could, if I just think better about other people, that, that's all. No, it, it requires us thinking very seriously about land and place and life together. And and you no, know, remember in Acts ten. I mean, in the, in the entire book of Acts, as I like to say, in the book of Acts, almost no one is doing what they want to do. Everybody's being pressed by the Spirit to do what they would prefer not to do. And most centrally, what the Spirit is pressing them is to go be with people they would prefer not to be with. So the, the, the racial imagination can't be overcome in thought. It can only be overcome in an intentionality of habitation, of trying to reconfigure life together. And yielding to the Spirit's work of trying to do that for us, trying to do that with us and in us and through us. Mm. You can tell that the work of the Spirit and attention to the work of the Spirit, of the Spirit consistently drawing us into union with Christ, that that's a, it's not just an illuminatory work, but it's a, Constantly, I, I like how you talked about everyone acts not doing what they want to do. Yeah, I'd never thought of it that way, but you're exactly right. I, I thought of like four examples when you said that. And But that sense that the Holy Spirit is constantly drawing us into that marginal place, <laughs> out of out of our um, into being, um, as my colleague uh, Sharon Ketchum talks about, out of being hosts and into being guests. Yes, that's right. That's right. And 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 it's very uncomfortable to do that, right? Because maybe you have opinions. <laughs> but my opinions matter. I wouldn't have folded the napkins this way, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but if we don't become guests, if we don't follow the spirit into that marginality, what ends up happening is we end up colonizing like it's we don't there's no neutral space <laughs> right that's that's exactly right and see, i think that's what's key the that you can't you can't um enact the christian that you desire and the christian you desire to be apart from allowing yourself to be drawn into spaces where the spirit is trying to create desire I mean, th- this is the thing about uh, coming back to that Acts passage. Just the, it, it, you know, it's it's not that God wants Peter to go be polite to the Gentiles. <laughs> uh, God wants him to desire them. Now, and the desire is not consumptive. The desire is communal. That is. God wants Peter to be with them um, in all the difficulties of being together. That, that, the analogy of the of the couple who are at the 
a part of this family. I mean, you know, so you're there and, you know, you, you are going to say, I don't like the way, you know, the napkins are on this table. And, um, you know, and at some point in time, people are going to say, well, what's wrong? Well, you know, I don't, I'm not used to doing napkins like this. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about that. So that's good. The difficulty is that Christians have wanted to avoid <laughs> precisely the possibility that they would have to live a Christian life out of control. Mm. <laughs> and and um, out of control doesn't mean you never get your way, but you can never count on getting your way. <laughs> or that your way is your way, but it's because it's been formed by the right. Holy Spirit. Right, right, right. right. So th- this is, this is the, the power of it. Um, you know, the, one of the, and I've mentioned this in the, in the earlier chapters, one of the great tragedies that we have not behold and not have looked at clearly is that when Christianity came to so many colonial sites, they, uh, among the many bad things they did, the, one of the worst things they did in terms of the faith is that they put on the backs of so many indigenous peoples the burden and responsibility of of being flexible, malleable, adaptable, having to figure a way how to sustain who they were culturally, who they were in terms of their story, who they were in terms of the, the way they lived in the world with this Christianity. We told them, okay, that's your responsibility. We're just going to make you Christian. You figure out what, what gets to stay of your, your people's ways. And instead of just the opposite, that is, instead of Christians coming and saying, God has called me to become fully you, with you, and inside your world, with you, loving you, loving your world, to show love of Jesus. That, that, that's the calling. That's that is the that is the fundamental trajectory of the incarnation. God fully with us, yet revealing the love of God. And this this is what we're supposed to be fully with the people, loving them, loving their ways. I, I had a student who was going back to live in a, uh, a Muslim country. And he was he had a church, and what he wanted to do was to live among his um, Muslim sisters and brothers, which were his neighbors, you know, people all around him, and show his deep love for his neighbors and for the cultural realities that comprise their life, and yet and live in those, and yet in those give witness to love of Jesus. Now that's. That's faith. That's faith. It just makes you, it makes you realize that this Christian thing has might have some legs after all, right? <laughs> like that it that it like is actually transformative, um, and not just for the individual, but for everything, <laughs> everyone, everything. Um, I'm we're gonna take a a quick speed round break, and then I'm gonna ask you. Um, I, I could ask you 20 more questions, but I'm just going to ask one after the speed round. 
um, that gets to uh, the the essay that the new essay that you had published um, about creation. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But quick answers. If you could compete as any professional athlete for a day, who would it be? Uh, LeBron James. <laughs> oh yes. What is the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Uh, worms. Particular kind of worms? I don't. I have no idea what kind they mm. were. <laughs> <laughs> what's What's your comfort movie? Matrix. Nice. Just the first one, or are you want to? All of them. All of them. Nice. <laughs> the whole series. So you're looking for our our references to the Matrix are going to matter again here when the fourth one comes out. I notice my students are like what. <laughs> <laughs> I realize how old I am when I use Matrix references. Right, right, right. If you got a day to hang out with any theologian living and dead, living or dead, who would it be and why? It would be um, Charlotte von Kirschbaum, Karl Barth's uh, secretary. Ooh, that would be interesting. I always want to know how, how her life was. Because what, what must her life have been like? What place in the world have you never been but would love to visit? I want to go to New Zealand Ooh. and spend time with the Maori people. Oh. Well, I'll have to talk about that because I, 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 I've gotten to go there and it was absolutely amazing. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Mm. What is the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, I would have to say um, the, the Ghanaian... Um, spiritual writer her name escapes me but her book's called jesus of the deep forest jesus of the deep forest i cannot remember her name i think it's alpha kuna i can't remember her name but i don't know something but yeah that book is beautiful best band or musical artist ever first one that pops <laughs> in your for the first one that pops into your mind i'm a jazz fan so it's a group called the yellow jackets Ooh. And what is one idea in theology that you think needs to die? We've talked about a few, but... <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, a whole bunch of them. Um, stewardship. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And, uh, oh, I, I want to get to this. Um, talking about the doctrine of creation, because I was like, the reason we talk about stewardship is because we're afraid to talk about what we're actually supposed to do. <laughs> Right, right, I was right. like, we're not stewards. Okay. So thank you for sending along your essay that was just published in the International Journey uh, Journey Journal of Systematic Theology, Reframing the World Toward an Actual Christian Doctrine of Creation. I love that title. And I, I appreciated reading these two things together because you follow some of the trajectories from the Christian imagination in this book. So there was a lot of um, uh, synthesis there. I'm just going to quote the opening question you ask here and then love to hear you answer it. What work should a Christian doctrine of creation do now? It should, it should orient us to thinking about place, habitation, and where we live and what we make. That, the, that's what a Christian doctrine of creation should do. Instead of focusing us obsessively on questions of origin, the relation of theology to science, or evolutionary theorization, those three matters have driven 
the doctrine into a deep hole out of which it has not emerged in the last 25 years, actually the next 45 years. I've noticed this with my students, that when we get to the doctrine of creation section, it's for a lot of them, they don't make any, there's no distinction in their mind between when I say doctrine of creation to creationism, which is a, you know, one version of a cosmogony, right? Mm -hmm. And right. I have to do a, a good bit of talking about those wrong turns in, that you mentioned in your article before we e I can even talk about what is actually going on. <laughs> um, but this, this, I think your sense in, of being obsessed with chronology, I don't know if it makes us feel safe. It's almost like we're, we're more obsessed with time than we are with place. That's exactly right. And that's, that's one of the fundamental problems. As the great Vine Deloria Jr. said, uh, a um, Native American religious religious thinker and theologian who it's not, it was never read enough and should, and should be read more. He said that the Christianity brought to so many Native Americans um, wanted to force them to think about time and wanted to, re to refuse thinking about space. And so the, the Christianity given to them is a Christianity that knows how to think time but doesn't know how to think space. And I think that's exactly right. And a doctrine of creation that doesn't want to think space can't be a doctrine of creation. And this has pretty intense ramifications. Uh, as I was reading your book and this article, um, I was thinking about pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. I was thinking about um, indigenous peoples fighting for their sacred lands at Mauna Kea and Standing Rock. I was thinking about Botham Jean, Atiana Jefferson in their own homes, right? their own space, and about how critical the doctrine of creation of being a creature, being in space, and that being, in, in a lot of ways, front lines for confronting colonialism because of our broken and exploitive relationship that we have with land and space. It's literally killing people. <laughs> so as a teacher, as a, as a pastor, where you mentioned a few people about who's doing the work. Where are the ways forward? Who's doing that work that we can read their books, that we can... Oh, there's so many people. But we, we have to read, um, we have to read um, quite a few Native American and indigenous people's work. We have to, and we have to listen very carefully. And um, Christian theologians, I mentioned Vine Gloria Jr. a moment ago. Christian theologians and Christians who um, listen to the theologians uh, all need to be reading more. Uh, of indigenous thought. We need to be um, returning to the Bible with a different lens. Um, you know, in, in the next book, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk, I'm talking a bit about uh, in biblical studies, one of the things that ha has happened, I mean, it's, it's been this way for who knows when, I, I haven't traced it genealogically, but in biblical studies, um, for the most part, most Bible scholars, whether they are Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, or New Testament, they all read the land as though it's private property. And so the world as an animate and communicative reality to which we are bound in an inextricable reciprocity 
is not a part of the way they do their work. But if you read, if you go, if you read the Bible with with what I just said in mind, it becomes a very different book. If you read, come to the Bible and, and start with the assumption that the land is alive and that it is communicative and the animals are alive and communicative and we are in reciprocity with them, then you will see things that we often don't see. Um, and Jesus makes more sense, right? Like, <laughs> if, if you take away, if you take away Every reference to land and animal from the words of Jesus, you have no words of Jesus. So his, the incarnation is not simply God entering flesh, it's God coming all the way down to the ground. So we, we have to go back and, and reread the Bible, um, saying to ourselves and saying out loud, how can I read this? without thinking privatization and private property. And even when I see the word, see the words that could be translated as ownership, or as I like to say, the word possession, how might I approach this in a different way? Understanding that possession in the Bible is not possession by, it is possession, uh, not possession of, it is possession by. That is, um, the, the world claims us as much as we or more than we claim the world and it is God's world the world gives witness to us and hopefully not against us so that, that that's where I would start people um, and I and I would I probably shouldn't say this but I, I would put away most books on the doctrine of creation <laughs> I would put them away because most of them are exactly the same whether it's a Catholic Protestant or Eastern Orthodox, um, it doesn't matter who. It, the, the, those books can basically be, be summed up <laughs> and mailed in because they, they all have the same thing. They open with a chapter on relationship and religion and science or theology and science. Then they have a chapter or two on evolutionary theorization. Then they go through the basic pieces of the doctrine and then they end with um, theological anthropology and then they and then it, it tie it all up together with the Imago Dei. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's every last one. Like, oh my God. And what's funny about that is, especially in, in modern Protestant evangelical thought, right? Like the this evolution creation debates being so, so central. And, and there's a sense in which if it's like, we don't feel like we have to talk about that. Um, and, and that has to be fundamental to the conversation. And, um, there's, there's something impoverished <laughs> when you start from a place of negation, when you start from a place of, of, of like arguing one side of a programmed apologetic that you, it's almost like you don't even know where it came from, but you feel like you have to. <laughs> the way you put it, that's exactly right. It's a set of assumptions that we decide from the very beginning we're going to operate without, without ever questioning them. And um, having to situate the question of origins at the very beginning of creation, of creation treatment, is already a profound mistake. 
Well, it was a pleasure talking with you today, Willie. Truly a delight. Same here, Amy. So this is your host, Amy Hughes, with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Reverend Dr. Willie James Jennings, Associate Professor of the Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale University Divinity School. Willie wrote The Christian Imagination, Theology, and the Origins of Race, published by Yale University Press. You can find a link to his book and his other work on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study.